Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Element 451. It's the CRM your school needs to be more effective. Do you want to give students a seamless experience with your school, from inquiry all the way to depositing? You need to get the time back to focus on students, and that can be done with Element's automation tools, giving your team more time to work with more students. Move away from spreadsheets, have real-time insights into where enrollment efforts stand, and empower your staff with an easy-to-use yet powerful platform. Visit element451.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. Speaking of somebody influential with a higher uh, realm of thinking, my co-host, the phenom Elizabeth Liba. Liz, how are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely amazing. Thank you for asking. How are you? Well, I'm doing well, and you're going to be doing even more amazing in about 20 seconds when I bring in our guest for this episode. We're going to we're going to skip the banter today, Liz, because we just want to get him on right away, right? We're Absolutely. Gonna, we want to get him on. His name is Dr. Wayne Frederick, and he is president of Howard University. Dr. Frederick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, are you kidding? It's such an honor to have you. So much going on at Howard, and and uh, we've got a lot of questions to ask you, so I uh, hope you're ready to have a little bit of fun. I do want to ask you or have you talk about one thing in particular, and that is your reaccreditation. This is always a big deal, right? Any school getting reaccredited, Howard went through, I think, a two-year cycle and process of, of achieving reaccreditation. Are you able to take a breath now and your staff taking a breath? And is there a sense of accomplishment and, and uh, excitement around the campus right now? Yeah, most certainly. You know, it's a, it's a pretty involved process. Um, we last did it in 2009 and um, we had a 10-year accreditation. And so our visit was actually supposed to be early in 2020 because of the pandemic. That got changed to a virtual visit later in the year. So we did that late in October and the Middle States uh, Committee met uh, this last week and uh, sent us a letter last week uh, letting us know that we have full reaccreditation. So it is an involved process. We put a team together a couple of years ago, and this is the conclusion of that. So it's great. You've probably got a, your team lead uh, sleeping for a week somewhere, just taking a vacation <laughs> with his or her feet up somewhere. I wish that was the case. My team lead, Dr. <laughs> Patterson, is now the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. So uh, right, he right back to work at that time when I first appointed him to do that. That's, that's amazing. Liz, you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. I have so many questions and I was so impressed with your background. We share a lot of commonalities because we're both from the islands Well, my family is from Jamaica and I'm from UK and I know that you're from Trinidad and Tobago and your mom was a nurse. My mom was a nurse. So I'd love you to talk about just your background and how you got to where you are today. I, I was like so 
in admiration of just how young you were as entering into becoming a doctor. And a lot of times we have doctors that are on the show that come on the podcast, but you're a doctor, doctor, not like doc, not like Joe. Joe's like, okay. Uh, wait, 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 I don't even know what the, come on. It's good. Not like Joe. Dr. Dr. Frederick still, uh, and you say he used to, he used to look young. He still looks as if he is 21 years old. Uh, congratulations I on an know. amazing look there. Doctor. You guys, he, you guys are, are a surgeon. You went to Howard at 16. You became a real medical doctor. Not like Joe, who's an EDD. You became a you're gonna I swear you're gonna get it after this episode you're done you became a doctor at 22 tell us and tell our audience how were you so motivated at such a young age and did you always know that you wanted to go to Howard University what was what was your plan as far as at such a young age aspiring sure. to be a doctor yeah you know I, I've been blessed um I was born in 1971 the year after uh, they started mandatory testing for sickle cell in Trinidad and Tobago so I found out my parents found out at birth um, that I had uh, sickle cell that was a big motivating factor you know my, my grandmother tells a story about me being about the age of three and asking her about my sickle cell overhearing her having a conversation and in that discussion with her, um, you know, I, I said to her, well, I'm gonna become a doctor and, and find a cure for this. And so that's where uh, my first inclination towards that, my mom being a nurse was a big factor as well. Um, Howard was the only destination. Uh, it, Howard had a sickle cell center and the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, Sir Eric Williams, actually was a political science professor at Howard. So Howard had a very big reputation in the Caribbean, especially in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, the physicians who delivered my two younger brothers were uh, physicians who graduated from Howard. And so I was always surrounded by kind of Howard's presence and that with, uh, as well, along with my motivation to uh, become a physician what was there. I was very blessed in school. I skipped a grade in high school, which is why I finished high school so young at the age of 14 and then had a couple of, um, a couple of years of doing really more college type courses. And so that really prepared me well for Howard's BSMD program, which is two years undergrad and four years med school. And that's how I ended up graduating at the age of 22. So I've been very blessed and Howard has been the only place that I, I think that I could have fulfilled that dream. I'd like to state, I'd like to state as Dr. Joe Salustio here, this is Dr. Joe Salustio talking, that I also, like Dr. Frederick, know the Heimlich maneuver. So I don't know what that qualifies me for, but but Joe well, would be if I'm ever favorite. if I'm ever choking, I will definitely call you. If I need some real medical advice, I will. <laughs> you might be choking. I might literally be choking. But if I need some real medical advice, I will call Dr. Frederick. So thank you for your input there, Joe. You're welcome. And in talking about medical advice, Dr. Frederick, can you weigh in about the passion that you have for the marginalized communities that are typically disparately affected by? Um, some of the things that you focus on as far as cancer outcomes and, and some of the concerns that you have and, and some of the initiatives that you've been working on throughout your career about in, uh, outcomes in um, the black and brown communities that you've served. Yeah, I know this is, a, this is an extremely important topic and something I'm passionate about. I mean, when you look at outcomes for so many cancers, um, they disproportionately impact African-Americans in particular. And uh, it, a lot of that has 
so many root um, causes behind it. So I've really tried to focus my career around how can we close that gap. And the more I examine it, the social determinants of health are a big factor, but I'm not sure that we always realize as a society just how wide the gap is. Right here in Washington, DC, which is a very small place, the life expectancy of an African-American male who lives in Ward 7 and 8, where the population is predominantly, is 95% predominantly African-American, uh, is about 67 years. If you come across the city um, to Ward 3, the life expectancy of a white woman, where it's 95% predominantly white, is almost 87 years. That's a 20-year gap. And if you think about it, just using Warren Buffett's simple compound interest, if you live 20 years younger, uh, you save for 20 years, uh, you, you have a productive activity over those 20 years, wealth and the ability to pass that on is significantly different. And so, you know, when we look at the social determinants of health in particular, access to, to proper healthcare, transportation, good nutritious meals, um, all of those things um, tend to be uh, severely compromised in the African-American community. And so what I've tried to work on is how can we change those things? So we have done several things at Howard since I've been back here, including trying to have navigation programs where we have a navigator help patients through uh, what sometimes could be a very confusing process to get to, to uh, see, see a doc. Uh, we've set up a off clinic in Ward 7 and 8 so that we could bring um, subspecialized care in particular to those patients in that area. We do free mammography at Howard once a month for those patients who don't have insurance or aren't English speaking, maybe immigrants and, and a bit hesitant to engage with um, a healthcare facility. And so there's several things that we must do. I think the pandemic has thrown this open in terms of showing just how wide those gaps are. And to be quite honest, the country benefits if we lift up those uh, who are lowest in terms of those types of outcomes. The country overall is going to benefit. And so we must spend some more time and, and energy and investment um, in these areas, in my opinion. It's awesome that you have managed to serve the community in such a meaningful way as far as providing those kinds of services, because we do know that a lot of times there's so much as far as like the, the lack of insurance and uh, the trust factor is something that you really uh, alluded to that I think is important for people to understand. Can you speak a little bit about the pandemic and, and being uh, where you're located, some of the particular, I guess, um, inequities and some of the particular um, disparities that affect the Black community, and what are some things that we can do as a country and us particularly in higher education can do to help to create some uh, closing of some of those gaps that you alluded to as far as um, the COVID pandemic and even other health issues? Yeah, early on in the pandemic, uh, testing was an issue. You know, now it's a year ago, it seems like some of these things we were doing seem almost archaic. Um, you know, to get a COVID test, you have to have a prescription from a referring physician, you know, things that clearly um, we're not going to work for those minority populations, or as you described, the marginalized populations. And so what we did is we set up a testing site uh, in those neighborhoods, and we made it um, absolutely free and open to anyone who wanted to come and get a test, uh, recognizing that 
you know, people who may be working in close quarters, waiters, grocery clerks, all of those people were unduly exposed and, and did not have the ability in some circumstances to quarantine. And, you know, once it was, it was clear that asymptomatic spread um, was a key factor, having them know their status was going to be helpful. And so we did that very early on. Now we're focused on uh, vaccine hesitancy. Obviously, there are people who are hesitant to get the vaccines because of mistrust. Um, I see Howard as a trusted messenger in the community. Mm. And so we've set up a vaccination center. We've been, um, you know, bringing people in and they're coming in in significant numbers. And I think that that's because, like I said, we, we're a trusted messenger. We've set up a PSA uh, for people to see people like myself getting the vaccine and talking about it, talking about our assessment of, of why we think it's safe and why we think it's the right thing to do. And that's something that we're gonna continue uh, to do uh, throughout this. And then as you go forward, those same inequities that have been you know, exposed are inequities that we have to address. And so Howard is gonna continue being at the forefront of trying to bring what I think is social justice issues uh, to the forefront and this health uh, care issue and the disparities that exist is really a social justice issue at the end of the day. And so we're gonna be at the forefront of that fight. I wanna pass it back to Joe, but I just have one other question that I want to highlight. And you, you alluded to this in terms of Howard being like a beacon, Howard being a trusted messenger in the community. Can you speak a little bit to maybe some of our listeners that might not understand the significance of Howard University as like a beacon in the black community across the country or all, I, I think even for me in Florida, everyone knows about Howard University, the legacy at Howard University. So can you talk a little bit about that, about particularly Howard oh. University and HBCUs in general, how they have served the black community so well over the past hundreds of years? Yeah, Howard University, you know, was founded on March 2nd, 1867, signed into uh, as the only federally chartered HBCU signed by the 17th president of the United States, President Johnson, who was the first president to be impeached, um, was a known racist and misogynist. And um, I think probably even signed that as a compromise almost. He was against uh, the first Reconstruction Acts, um, the Freedmen's Bureau that had been signed, set up. He would, he would work very hard and, and ended up having a result of closing it. So Howard's very birth was a paradox because while it was born out of giving freed slaves an opportunity uh, to be educated, um, we're now training future presidents and uh, we have our alum, uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris in the White House. And that just goes to show you just what Howard is about. In between there, you've got 154 history uh, of a caravan on its way to social justice. Um, picking up people along the way, giving them opportunities, people like Thurgood Marshall and Vernon Jordan, um, Elijah Cummings, uh, Chadwick Boseman, Taraji Henson. And so Howard has been about providing an opportunity to those who otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity. And I think what happens here is that we uh, try to dip the African-American experience in black excellence and make it clear that uh, you know, what we are about is uplifting uh, the, the, the African-American community, but for the service of the entire society. And a society is better when we diversify different industries. It's better when we bring diverse voices to the table to discuss our uh, larger American problems. And we're trying to prepare that next generation to do that. 
Are you ready to reimagine your admissions and enrollment marketing? Wherever you are in the admissions CRM selection process, Element 451 is here to help you. Now, why check them out? Well, Element 451 empowers admissions and enrollment teams to work more efficiently as they develop stronger, more personalized engagements with prospective students. Their cloud-based admissions, marketing, and enrollment CRM platform is powerful, yet easy to use. Complicated systems are exactly that, complicated. At its core are two of the most important ingredients for working smarter, automation and analytics. At Element 451, you get enrollment experts, marketers, engineers, data magicians, and thought leaders with decades of experience working in higher ed and ed tech to help you streamline your systems for more effective and greater yield. Visit them at element451.com. That's element451.com. I do want to stick on the HBCU questions just for a second, because if you roll back the clock, Wayne, just a couple of years ago, not even, there was a big question about HBCU survival in the higher ed ecosphere, right? There's a lot of talk around HBCUs. They're not going to make it. They're, you know, there's this, that's that. Now, could have been conjecture, could have been for real. And over the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen deep investments across the country in HBCUs by uh, philanthropists, by uh, the, the United States government. I think a lot of that also was important with the social, um, oh boy, the social what the disruption we have had that everyone is starting to come around uh, and, and be solidified on the idea that HBCUs play a very, very important part, not only in educating um, uh, people, black, uh, black uh, people, but educating them to be leaders in our society, which is what we need, right? We need people from all backgrounds to assume leadership. And HBCUs are a conduit in, in some respects to take people who are in a, a lower economic background or have maybe just college, a regular old college isn't right for them and they need to be around people that are lifting them up towards something greater. And now HBCUs are being celebrated in a way that I haven't seen them be celebrated in the last 20 years or so. How does that feel? Why do, where do you think that's coming from? That was a long yeah. question, by the way. No, no, I, I, I think well articulated because it's a, it's a complicated issue. So first thing is, you know, since I've been in this role, every time somebody poses that question to me about whether or not HBCUs are relevant, I'll tell them that the issue is not about relevancy, but it's about excellence. It's about how can we ensure that these institutions are thriving because of how necessary they are to the fabric of American success. And that is underscored by the fact that HBCUs represent only 3% of higher ed institutions, but are responsible for about 22% of the bachelor's degrees that are awarded to African-Americans. And then when you look at STEM disciplines, it's about 34% of the African-Americans who receive it. And institutions like Howard send more African-Americans to medical school than anybody else in the country. We've graduated more black physicians than anyone else in the country. And over the past couple of decades, we've sent more African-Americans to STEM PhDs than Stanford, MIT, Harvard, and Yale combined. So the, the role that we play uh, is not a um, light one. This is not, and these, these are not institutions that are there because um, you know they are fat. They are an essential aspect of what is taking place in America uh, today. And so we have to make sure that um, they thrive. And I think what has happened 
uh, is that people have been uh, made more aware of those outcomes, but those outcomes didn't just start taking place last year or the year before. They've been around for over a hundred and something years and, and uh, we've continued to produce that excellence. So I think it's critical that we continue to uh, push that narrative. That's what I've done in this position. And the reality is that if HBCUs didn't exist today, we would have to go out and create them, uh, to be quite honest. And so I, I do think um, that it's an issue of excellence and how well they thrive versus an issue of relevance. When you say we'd have to go out and create them, do you think it would be, do you think the reason for that is because you have just a large uh, percentage of uh, uh, Black Americans who need to go to HBCUs and that there wouldn't be, the rest of higher education may not be prepared to serve them. And yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just speculating. I think that's the, those are the facts. I mean, you, you, like I said, we, we represent 3% of the higher ed institutions in the country, yet still, um, we, we punch well above our weight. You know, we, we're responsible for one in five African-Americans getting their bachelor's degrees. And, and then even if you look at other levels, so at Harvard's MBA program over the past 50 years, the number one supply of African-Americans to that program from their undergrad campus was Harvard. Number two was Howard University. So my point is that if they didn't exist, the circumstance that we already have where um, African-Americans are well underrepresented uh, would even be more dire and we would be looking for a way uh, to create these institutions. So the fact that we have them means that we should embrace them and we should make sure that they're thriving and, and that they can do even more in the spirit of uh, what the outcome is, which I think ultimately is to help diversify so many industries that, that need it. But by the way, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention um, your uh, uh, your post that you put out and Vernon Jordan uh, passing away. Seems like he was a father to you. We, uh, we just want to pass on our condolences to you and uh, and let you know that uh, we, I saw that post and I thought, man, that, that was just an amazing post, an amazing couple of gentlemen. Can you talk about what he meant to you? Sure. You know, Vernon Jordan um, was absolutely amazing. And as I said, he was more father than father figure. And that's because uh, he poured himself into me, um, and he did that uh, for reasons I would never understand. He reached out to me. Um, he engaged me uh, often. You know, I would meet with him almost every week for breakfast on a Saturday morning and, and um, could talk to him about anything, a wide variety of topics. And you think of someone who, you know, grew up and came from fairly modest uh, beginnings, and uh, would end up in the hallways of the White House advising presidents in corporate boardrooms, and yet still never forgot to look back and to pull each other, pull others like myself forward. And the most common call that I would get from him would be about a student who he randomly met on the street. And I would always think this is probably a referral from somebody influential, and it would be somebody that he was walking in the streets of New York City, recognized him, told them that they want to go to Howard and he would follow up and call me up and, you know, ask me to meet with this student. And I was always amazed. So he had a common touch. He had impeccable judgment and he had a love for this institution. Um, that is something that I certainly intend to, to protect and to cherish. Not a bad recruiter, not a, not a bad uh, messenger for the university out there. Let me ask this before I pass it back to Liz, and Liz, you can take it home. Uh, but I, but I think uh, I, I think the world needs to know 
uh, Wayne, how do you go from surgeon to college president? I mean, yeah. if there were two things that made absolutely no sense, uh, how you go from <laughs> surgeon to college president, that would be one of the things that you just never would put those two things together. It's kind of an oxymoron, a jumbo shrimpish, right? How yeah. do you fall into that? Talk, talk about Well, that. a college is very intricate, almost like doing surgery, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, th thank you, Liz, for clearing I'm that up. I'll try to square that circle. So, yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is, to be quite honest, I'm a reluctant university president. This was never an ambition of mine. I, I don't describe myself as a very ambitious person. I think, because I, I, I think ambition is about oneself. Um, I, I like to see myself as an aspirational person. And I think aspiration is about trying to do better for others and aspiring to something, you know, a higher calling. How would give me what no other institution in the world could have given me. Um, not just an education to become an MD, but then how it turned around and um, you know, trained me to be a surgeon. And so that, uh, that experience that I had is one that I am humbled to try to provide an opportunity to others for. So my role as president of Howard is really an attempt to pay back a debt of gratitude that I know it would be impossible to pay back. And so between becoming a surgeon and getting to the presidency it was really a very unusual route. I, when I came back here from University of Connecticut, which was my first faculty position, I really tried to stay away from administrative roles and that lasted about six months. And every time I would get another administrative role, people would see something else in me and would really push me uh, forward until uh, I became the interim president quite uh, by surprise and then subsequently the president. Um, the similarities do exist in that as a surgeon, one of the things that I live by is my mentor's words, Dr. LaSalle Lafall, who was the first black uh, president of the American Cancer Society, the first black president of the American College of Surgeons and was a surgical oncologist like myself. And his words were equanimity under duress. So when I'm in the operating room and you know something goes wrong and the patient starts bleeding, I don't get to yell and scream and stomp my feet. I have to focus on what's going on and try to control that. And so being in a complex organization like this, something is always going to be going on, going wrong. And I think that equanimity under duress is something that I have learned to bring to the job, uh, to pass on to, to my senior team and to really manage. You know, uh, But the reality is I'm a triple alum of Howard. I have an MBA from Howard. And so how it really prepared me well uh, to understand and to manage, you know, the complexities of the job. And the last thing I'd say is there's a big juxtaposition as well um, in the job. Um, being a cancer surgeon is probably the most rewarding job that you can have. Patients and their families are very, very gratuitous about what you do. Um, they express that gratitude. Even when you take difficult news to them, they display a courage and a, and a nobility that's unbelievable. Um, being a university president is difficult. Um, you have many different constituents and nobody's happy. Um, if somebody has a, you know, a deficit in their bill, they need another 5,000, you give them 4,500, they're still not happy because they needed 5,000. And so I, I recognize that while this might be the most ungrateful job, being a cancer surgeon is, is a very grateful job. And I, fortunately, uh, by the grace of God, I get to um, live in both worlds and it's very, very satisfying. I'd love for you to talk about mentorship because I think in the black community, especially with our young 
Black students that are coming from these marginalized backgrounds, sometimes immigrant families, first-generation students, students that don't necessarily know how to navigate some of these spaces, whether they're going to a PWI or going to an HBCU. Can you speak to just from your own personal experience and also from your experience at, as uh, a faculty and uh, administrator at Howard and now the president as to what is the importance of mentorship and how we can as a sector in higher education work to incorporate mentorship more integrally across our college campuses? Yeah, you know, that's a, that, that's such an important thing because ultimately I think one of the things that helps people succeed is instilling confidence in them early and often. Um, one of the things I learned early on because I've had, I've been blessed with great mentors is that mentorship is a two-way street. So we spoke about Dr. LaFore, we spoke about Vernon Jordan, those two men, um, I would come to realize later on in my relationships with them that they got just as much from seeing me succeed as I got from them giving me advice or showing me the way. And I think especially with young um, black youth uh, today, that it is something that's important. And while I think sometimes because of the, there's a, this seems to be a generational divide, we fail to realize that young people want to be mentored. They actually wanna hear uh, from people they may think are old school. And I think Vernon Jordan did this the best of anybody that I've seen do it. Um, he didn't need to learn their music um, and dance to their songs. Uh, he bought what he had to bring to the table. And one of the, the things that I will never forget is when Chadwick Boseman gave uh, the commencement address, I had a dinner at my house Tuesday night um, to give him and his friends an opportunity to really gather some fellow alum. But I also invited Vernon Jordan. And I have a picture of both of them talking and talking intensely. And I think it just demonstrates that, you know, I'm not sure how much of Black Panther Vernon Jordan could have spoken about, but there's so much more to our humanity that needs to be explored between the generations and that should occur during mentorship. So I urge all of us to play our role in terms of trying to mentor that generation. And that doesn't mean that we have to understand every single thing about what they do or that they need to understand every single thing about us. But the common thread of our humanity is what we should ex totally explore and amplify. I love that as a pitcher, Vernon Jordan speaking with Chadwick Boseman. You can, always you can almost imagine them maybe on a cloud in heaven speaking to each other. This idea of the older generation it's almost making me want to cry. An older generation re reaching back to the next generation and us not losing sight of just how many lessons that older generation has to share with us and, and how precious it is. And, and Howard is a perfect example of the legacy and the richness of our culture and how much we have that we can lean on. Like we're all on the shoulders of giants. We're standing on the shoulders of giants and it's amazing just how much of that we can pull and draw on that strength. I wanna thank you for your time. This has been really precious and we wanna be respectful of the time that you have spent with us. You've given us a lot to think about and a lot of that pride in Howard University, I would say we all share across the country as just a beacon of light and hope for so many of us. So I thank you for this opportunity and both of us, Joe and myself really appreciate 
that you were able to spend this precious time with us. So we want to just wrap up with the last couple of questions, if you don't mind. And uh -huh. that would just be um, if there's anything else that you want to mention about Howard University, about any of the, the initiatives or anything that you have coming up that you'd like to share with us that maybe the listeners would want to hear about. And also the last question would be, what do you see as the future of higher education? Yeah, you know, I think the future for higher education is bright. Uh, for a long time uh, as higher education leaders, I think we've sat back and, and kind of given up a bit of our role to be leaders in our communities and our society. And um, I think the pandemic has, has forced us to regain that and to really step up and step in. And, and there's so much for us to contribute. And I think if we, if we step up as we should and do that, I think the future is bright. I also think the future is bright because I think young people are amazing. And I think uh, what young people have been through right now um, is going to prove very, very useful. You know, there's an African proverb that says, doesn't matter how long the night is, dawn will come. And uh, these young people have seen a very dark moment in our history uh, as a world and as a humanity. And I think what they will get from that is that the interconnectedness of all of us, the fact that when they get an opportunity to attend a higher education institution like Howard University, they must fulfill Howard University's motto of truth and service. And as we say, you don't come here to get a degree, you come here to get an education and it comes alive when you go out and serve others. And in closing, I'd like to thank uh, you and Joe for all that you do. The reality is that, you know, podcasts like the Ed Up experience and advocacy and getting the message out is a major part of the work that needs to be done. It's the blocking and tackling that is so important in our society. And so the fact that you've given so much energy to such a worthy cause is something that is extremely commendable. And so I certainly want to thank you for what you're doing. Uh, to uplift uh, not just this, this issue of education, but really to target certain audiences that otherwise wouldn't get this kind of a message. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And so I don't know if you know this, but I thank you for agreeing to come back on the EdUp experience in the future. I don't know if you agreed yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you do agree um, for more than uh, two hours. We're going to get you for a two hour period so you can really pick your brain <laughs> surgically, if you will, hint, hint. Um, but it, it really is an honor, uh, Dr. Frederick. And, and uh, the work you do is incredible. Liz and I were very excited to talk with you. You delivered 100%. And this has been another episode of the EdUp Experience with Dr. Wayne Frederick. He's president of Howard University. Wayne, thank you so much. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the EdUp Experience. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the EdUp Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the EdUp Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.